turn in your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to the book of Acts. We're going to look at the end of Acts 18 this morning, and we're going to go into even the start of chapter 19. Uh, so I want to make sure that you are there so when I, I read it here in a bit that you can follow along and see, see what it has to say. Uh, but if you are a member of our church, you certainly, I, I trust, received an email from the pastors this week, and uh, we included this even in the weekly email that we send to all the people on our communication list. But the pastors are making a proposal, in particular of how baptism relates to membership. And I, I want to explain very, very briefly uh, what we're recommending and as a segue into this text and why we're taking a week out of the book of Hebrews to come into this text specifically. Uh, but I don't expect all of you to have a thorough understanding of all of churches' different views of baptism or how they function, why they believe what they do. Um, but there, essentially there are two camps of churches uh, and individual Christians and how we think about baptism. Uh, there's two big words that people use to describe them. One is called credo-baptism, and the other is called pedo-baptism. The basic gist of that uh, is that credo-baptists are like what we are as a church. Uh, we baptize people when they profess faith in Jesus. Uh, we baptize believers, people we believe to be believers, those who are trusting in Christ. Whereas pedo-baptist churches, in addition to baptizing people who are professing faith, they also will baptize the infants of believing Christians. Uh, as they come into their families, they will baptize them. And I don't have time to elaborate on why they do that and what is distinctive about their understanding of that. Uh, but how this relates to this proposal and why we're coming to this text today is this. As a credo-baptist church, CCC, when there's been someone enter into the life of our fellowship who is a pedo-baptist, someone who convictionally believes we should be baptizing the infants of believing Christians, when they've come into our fellowship and their desire is to become a member of our church, like formally covenant together with us, what we have historically and what we presently do is that we require that person to be baptized as a believer, uh, to, to profess their faith in believer's baptism. That's been a requirement. What the pastors are recommending is, and what we're proposing is that we modify that practice. And if there's a convictional pedo-baptist uh, who maybe was baptized as an infant still believes that that is the proper way to do things, that we, if they are desirous to become a member of our church, and they're clearly a Christian, they're professing faith in the gospel, they're, they're demonstrating that they have the Holy Spirit in their life, we're recommending that we open up the membership of our church to be willing to receive the, that brother or sister into the life of our membership without requiring that they be baptized as a Christian that they be baptized as a believing Christian. My goal this morning is not going to be to explain all the rationale of why we're recommending that or to anticipate all questions, answer all questions. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A time for that a few Wednesday nights from now. And that would be really beyond what we try to do from this pulpit anyways. We're not trying to persuade people to buy into proposals. We're trying to preach the Word of God. And so we wanted to, though, in conjunction with making that proposal, we wanted to read these two stories from the book of Acts, the end of Acts 18, start of Acts 19, because I trust what we'll see as we read these and as we hear them preach is that we'll see that there's deep theological truths baked into these stories about two things in particular, about baptism and about the work of the Holy Spirit and the relationship of those two things. And I, I think you'll see as we read through this how it connects with that uh, proposal that we're making. Uh, but I, I want us to be, start, we're going to start in Acts 18, verse 24, probably the last paragraph in your copy of the Bible of that chapter, Acts 18. 
And then we're going to also read the first paragraph of Acts 19. There's these two stories that uh, Luke, the man who wrote Acts, puts right back to back. And I think he did that on purpose and for a reason, uh, to show us things about baptism, to show us things about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Before I read this, I want you to know uh, one thing uh, from the book of Acts. As we haven't been in the book of Acts, typically we just move through books of the Bible. We've been going through the book of Hebrews the last several months, and we'll get back to that next week. But the book of Acts, if you know nothing about it, the book of Acts was written by Luke, and it was written after Jesus was raised from the dead. And what he was doing in recording all these stories was recording the very earliest history of the church. As Jesus got ready to ascend to heaven and then he commissioned his apostles to go out with the gospel and to make other disciples, to plant churches, uh, that is what the record of Acts is for us, this history of the early church. It actually begins though, and you may, if you haven't read it before, you may not realize this, as the book of Acts begins, Jesus is still on earth. The resurrected Jesus is still on earth, spending some weeks uh, with his apostles, teaching them things. And I want to point out one thing he said that Luke records for us right at the very beginning of Acts. It's like this first note that hits in the book that you keep seeing play out throughout the book and even in the text we're going to focus in on more in depth today. If you go back to the very beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, when the resurrected Jesus is still on the planet, uh, still investing in his disciples, there's something Luke records for us that Jesus says. Uh, he records in Acts 1, 5 that Jesus said to his disciples this, and he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he's referring to this event that we've come to call Pentecost, which happens in the very next chapter of Acts. But he's drawing this distinction, Jesus himself, and Luke records it for us, this distinction between baptism in water and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you see both of those things happen in an abundance. As you go through the book of Acts, the church starts to grow, the Spirit comes upon people and dwells people, uh, churches are planted in new countries and new cities. Where we're at today is in the city of Ephesus. There's a church that has started to form there, disciples that have started to be made there, and both of these stories that we're going to read today happen in that city of Ephesus. And so uh, Luke puts these two stories back to back because there's some similarities to the stories and there's some key differences to the stories. And I want you, as I read these, even kids, uh, try to listen what is similar about these two stories and what is different about these two stories. And so I want to read these from Acts 18 and 19. Start at Acts 18, verse 24. And would encourage you to follow along in your copy of the word. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus... He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That was story one. If you go to Acts 19, the very next verse, Luke tells story number two. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth... 
Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize what I think Luke is trying to communicate in these two stories this way, uh, these two points, and a lot of the sermon will revolve around these two ideas from this text, is that the practice of baptism is important, but the presence of the Spirit is of utmost importance. That the practice of baptism is important, but the presence of the Spirit is of utmost importance. And so I want to... uh, squarely focus in on those two things, baptism and the work of the Spirit. Uh, But I want to point out a couple things from this text because they're just too rich to just gloss over and not at least point to uh, just for a moment because I think they'd be helpful and instructive to our church. Uh, I think of this like I'm a dad. When we go on a trip some places, we're going a certain place, but sometimes along the way, like along the road, there's neat things I want our kids to see, but we don't have time to get out and fully stop and explore them. So I just kind of point out out the window. There's a couple things real quick I want to do from this text, just kind of point out the window. Hey, look at these things, but we won't have time to fully dive into them. Those three things, before we get to baptism and the work of the Spirit, those three things would be this. First, I want you to see and just at least take note of the humility of this man, Apollos. The humility of Apollos. In Apollos, in that first story, you see a man who is described as being eloquent, competent in the scriptures, fervent in spirit. Uh, Luke says that he was teaching accurately, that he was speaking boldly in the synagogues. Uh, When he goes to Achaia, he even is able to powerfully refute Jews in public with the scriptures. This is a gifted, gifted man. But what I appreciate about Apollos that you see in this text is that he doesn't give in to the arrogance that typically accompanies giftedness. Those things often go together, where people who are very gifted become very prideful. Uh, But when Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife, hear him teaching, and they know he needs to learn, they pull him aside, he doesn't just scoff at it. He doesn't just bristle at it and say, ah, have you seen what I'm doing? Like, he he listens to them, and apparently he grows from what they teach him. What a powerful example I want that to be for all of us who are younger in the faith, Uh, that when there's older saints uh, who challenge us or seek to help us be sharpened, that we don't rebuff them, that we don't press them away, but that we actually seek to listen and learn from people who are further along in the faith. That's sight number one. Second thing out the side window here, I so admire the investment of Priscilla and Aquila in this man, Apollos. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila apparently had been believers for a while, from what we gather together from the book of Acts. Um, But I admire them because when they saw this younger man who's gifted, who's having all this sway amongst people, rather than seeing him as a a rival that should be resisted, uh, they don't seek to embarrass him. They don't seek to publicly refute him and kind of shame him 
in the public's eye, but they do care for him and want him to learn and grow, so they pull him aside even into their home to teach him privately. And I I so appreciate that, uh, that they don't see him as a rival to be embarrassed, but as a tool in the hand of God to be sharpened, Uh, someone that they want to help grow in his service of the kingdom. And I I want their example to be an example to us who are older in the faith, who've been longer in the faith, that when we see imperfect, flawed people coming behind us in the generations, or they're newer to the faith, that we don't seek to embarrass them or shame them or assume they should know everything that I know, but that we lovingly invest in them, that we, uh, that we seek to help them grow. So may, it, may they be an example to older saints. I would say also, just as an aside, may Priscilla be an example to the women of our church, that you can and should impact the brothers of our church, uh, that you can make an investment in helping brothers grow in the faith, and may Aquila, uh, which is a man's name, it may not sound like a man's name, may Aquila be an example to the men of our church, that you don't have to be an elder, you don't have to be a preacher to invest in the church. Uh, Aquila is investing uh, as a non-elder in uh, this other man. So that's the, the second thing. The third thing, just out the window, before we get to these stories and the differences and similarities, I so appreciate the interdependence of the churches in the early church, Kale, uh, you kind of alluded to this from Philippians, but you see an example here, uh, that with this man, Apollos, in the city of Ephesus, when he had this desire to go to the region of Achaia to invest in the believers there, the church at Ephesus that's starting to form, they don't hog him. They don't say, no, you can't go there. They gladly send him, and they encourage even the believers there to receive Apollos, and I so admire that, that even in the early earliest days of the churches, that they were sharing resources, that they were sharing people, that they were, they were glad to see the kingdom grow, not just in their little sliver of the world, but everywhere. And may that be an example to us. But those three things point out the side of the window. I want to get to these two stories generally and how they point to teaching about baptism and about the Holy Spirit. Uh, to understand why Luke puts these two stories together, I want us to think for just a moment of what is similar about the two stories and then what's different about them. There's some similarities and there's some things that are different. And you may have noticed some of these even as I read them. A few things that are similar about these two stories and why Luke puts them together. The first would be this, is that all of these men, Apollos and then the around 12, we'll just say 12 men there at Ephesus, so those 13 guys, one common thread that we know about all of them was that they knew only the baptism of John the Baptist. That is said of both Apollos and of these 12 men. If you look at chapter 18, verse 25, it says that about Apollos that he knew only the baptism of John. Right? That's a detail Luke purposely puts there. Uh, And then in chapter 19, verse 3, as Paul's interacting with these guys in Ephesus, as they're answering some of his questions, they say that we were baptized into John's baptism. That's what they say in verse 3. So uh, all of these men knew only the baptism of John the Baptist. Uh, That may seem super foreign to us. I bet if you did a poll of everyone in this room, nobody would say, hey, I was baptized in the name of John the Baptist or into John's baptism. But this was a unique time in salvation history. Uh, We don't have time to get into all the details, but it's remarkable how far of a reach John the Baptist had. Uh, He had been dead for a couple decades by this point in time, but there were still people representing him, calling people to be baptized into this baptism of repentance. That's what verse 4 says of chapter 19, that John's baptism was one primarily of repenting 
of sins, but he was also ideally, when he was teaching, pointing people to Jesus, that it wasn't just supposed to be a baptism of repentance, but it seems like that's what it had grown into. So that's one common thread. The other commonality of these 13 men is that they all needed more instruction, right? There was something lacking in their understanding where they needed people to teach them, they needed people to invest in them, right? So Apollos, when we read the paragraph about him, Luke recorded for us in verse 25, he specifically notes that Apollos was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, right? He's teaching accurately things about Christ, yet he still needed, look at the next verse, verse 26, he still needed this husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila, to teach him the way, explain to him the way of God more accurately. So he had accurate knowledge to some degree, but he needed more thorough knowledge. He needed some refining, some tweaking of understanding. And the same is definitely true of these 12 men, that they were needing more instruction, right? Uh, if you, as you read the start of Acts 19, there is clearly gaps in what these men know, what they believe, that are exposed by the questions that Paul asks them as he starts asking them, did you receive the Spirit? Like, what were you baptized into? There's a clear gap in their knowledge and understanding. Especially, it doesn't even seem like they know much about Jesus at all. Even though they've been baptized in the baptism of John, they know nearly nothing, it seems, about Christ himself. And so there's these gaps, right, are in their understanding, both in Apollos and in these 12. So that's some similarities, that they knew the baptism of John only, and they needed further instruction. But what are some differences? There's, these two stories are not just mere images of each other. There's some clear differences as well. One difference between the two stories is the type of instruction that was needed, right? They, they all needed instruction. They had gaps, but the type of instruction that they needed was vastly different, right? I was thinking of this. It's almost spring training time for baseball. If you're ever like a little league coach and if you have a wide range of ages of kids that you're trying to teach things about baseball, there's always more that they could be learning. Some kids, you might just be trying to teach them how to run to first base, right? So they don't run straight ahead or run the wrong way. You're trying to just teach them real fundamentals. Whereas kids who've been further long you may be teaching them like I don't know how to do this but how to snap a curveball or something like it's more refined you're trying to teach them more nuanced things about the sport Uh, so just because you lack knowledge doesn't mean you lack the same kind of knowledge right Uh, and so that's definitely true of Apollos and these 12 they all need to learn something but the type of thing they need to learn about is very very different right so Apollos when you read about when we read about him Apollos, verse 25, Luke says that he had already been taught the way of the Lord. He had already, and he's teaching about Jesus accurately. Like he knows a lot about Christ. Uh, he's, he know, he's been taught it, he's teaching it. Uh, it seems like what he needed to learn about, although we don't know this for sure, but given the volume of Luke talking about baptism here, it seems like what, what Apollos was needing instruction about was the subject of baptism that he needed to learn that, hey, the baptism of John isn't just the final form of baptism. Like there's the triune name we're to be baptized into, uh, that, that he needed to learn more about baptism. But these 12 men who Paul talks to in Ephesus, there's way more foundational things they're needing to learn about. It seems like they know almost nothing about Jesus himself. They have no possession of the Holy Spirit yet. They seem very confused even about what they believe. So 
it seems like Apollos needed instruction about baptism. These people needed instruction about Jesus himself, like Christianity 101, right? So that's a huge difference. But a key difference that I think Luke is trying to draw our attention to in these two stories is the difference of whether or not these people had the Holy Spirit active in their life. Uh, Is the Holy Spirit active? Is he living within them? Uh, What is their relationship with the Holy Spirit? It's a key difference because everything in the story about Apollos indicates that the Holy Spirit is active in him. Uh, that the Holy Spirit is present in him, working through him. Uh, He was already, even before he talked to Priscilla and Aquila, he is already teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Would that be said of somebody who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Uh, He is not only understanding things himself, but he is calling other people to believe in Christ. He's advocating for Christ. He's evangelizing people, calling them to put their trust in Christ. He's refuting people who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. That that is an activity of the Holy Spirit in a person. And so the conversation he had with Priscilla and Aquila in their home, I do not think we get any hint here that that conversation was to try to convert Apollos. But it was to try to sharpen him to try to help refine his understanding of things. It does not seem like it was at all to convert him. And one last sign, I think that Apollos already had the Holy Spirit active in his life, that he was already a Christian before he even talked to these people, is that the church there, this fledgling church is starting to assemble, they gladly send him to another place to represent Christ. Right? Would you do that with somebody who you think just became a Christian? That you would send them gladly to go somewhere else to represent Christ, to represent the church? You would not do that, but they gladly send him on, which I think is an indicator to us they viewed him as a brother and not one who just in Priscilla and Aquila's house just now became a Christian, but someone who's had the Spirit for a while. So all signs in eight, chapter 18 indicate that Apollos does have the Spirit at work in his life, But everything in chapter 19 that we read indicates that with these 12 men that the Spirit of God is not active in them, that he's not present in them at the beginning of of the story when we first meet them, right? Their teachers, as you read their little conversation with the Apostle Paul, it seems that their teachers, whoever those people were, had taught them to repent They had taught them the teachings of John about repentance, that they were to repent of their sins, but it seems like they had told them nearly nothing about Jesus himself, about the cross, about the atonement of Christ, about the resurrection of Christ. They knew about repentance, but they did not know about Christ by everything that we can tell. And without knowing almost anything about Christ, he's having to tell them about Jesus in verse 4. Without the message of Jesus coming to these brothers, uh, there is no way that they had experienced the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit yet because his power, his presence comes through the preaching of Jesus. And if they had barely even heard of Christ yet, maybe not at all, they are, if they are Christless, then they are spiritless, right? Uh, there, there is no evidence until Paul tells them of Christ, until he prays for them, lays hands on them, that the Spirit of God is active in them. That is a key difference. Apollos does seem to possess the Spirit. These 12 men appear, by all accounts, to not. And so, 
With that explained, what can we learn from these two things, from these two stories? I want to come back to those initial statements I made. The first one I want us to see from this text is that the practice of baptism is important. Uh, it, the practice of baptism is important. I think you see that from this story in Acts 19, the story of these men who get baptized uh, in Acts 19, right? Uh, baptism is a command of Jesus. It's not just something people came up with, uh, hey, that'd be a cool picture thing for us to do. Jesus commanded it, right? At the end of the book of Matthew, we have a clear command from G- the resurrected Jesus given to his disciples where he said, and some of you could quote this, He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That was the command of Jesus, right? And so then through the book of Acts, you see that command become a pattern, right? That as as that gospel is shared, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is shared and people hear it and they believe it. And as they confess their sin, they profess their faith in Jesus, you see again and again, sometimes with individuals, sometimes with groups, you see people baptized in water. Uh, You see them, upon the profession of their faith, you see them be baptized. This happened 3,000 people it happened to in Acts chapter 2. Then you read in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. You read in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul himself is baptized. You read Acts chapter 10, there's a group of Samaritans that are baptized who are believing. You see in Acts chapter 16, you see this Philippian jailer who hears the good news and his household and they are said to believe in God and they're baptized. Even in chapter 18 itself, like if your eyes are in chapter 18, you look back at verse eight and in the city of Corinth it says there's this pattern that many Corinthians heard Paul preach the gospel and they believed what Paul said and then they were baptized that's the pattern that's what Jesus commanded us to do is people need to hear the good news and when they believe you baptize them as a follower of Christ. That is how the pattern is follows. And the pattern continues here in Acts chapter 19 with these 12 men, or almost 12 men, is that uh, by all accounts, this story is recording that for us, that they hear the good news of Jesus from Paul, they believe it, and then they're baptized uh, as believers in Christ. I would note for you, I don't think chapter 19, that first paragraph, is a whole transcript of the conversation between Paul and these 12 men. I think it's a summary. I, I, I would almost assure you there was more stated than just a couple sentences uh, that he taught them more fully about Jesus, the Jesus that John had wanted to point people to. And as they hear that good news of Jesus that had been lacking, They now seemingly believe, and Paul sees something in them that now gives him uh, encouragement to actually baptize them, which I don't think he would do if they weren't professing faith. I would note for you, Acts chapter 19, this first paragraph, is the only time in the whole New Testament where we have a record of people being re-baptized. It's the only one. Like, you won't find another single one. So it is a unique story. I I acknowledge that. Um, But I would say I think it still fits with the pattern that we see throughout Acts, that the gospel is preached, they hear it, they believe it, they confess their sins and their faith in Christ, and they're baptized in water as a response to it. So it fits the pattern, even though it's unique. And there is much at stake in how we practice baptism as a church. Uh, baptism was given to us by Christ on purpose because it's a beautiful thing. Baptism, even what we just did this morning, it depicts visually and even in word, it depicts for us the story of Jesus, of his life, his death, 
his resurrection. It reminds us of that. But it also, for the person being baptized, it identifies them with Jesus and identifies them with his people, that they are baptized into something. They are connected to us now as Christians. And so baptism, there's much at stake in how we practice it, what we do with it. Baptism is not, I I want you to hear me say this, baptism is not optional. It's not just something we can, yeah, I don't really like that. I, I think that's kind of silly. It was a command of Jesus. And there's patterns that were to follow of how we baptize people. No Christian should ever, or I would say even really could ever, simply refuse to be baptized. That's not ours to, to do. Uh, we, we don't just get to make it optional. And we also cannot just modify baptism however we want. We can just kind of morph it into whatever we like it to be and and just do it however we see fit. There are different views of baptism amongst churches and amongst individuals. And if we had more time or if we ever do a class on this, I'd be glad to explain some more of why those different views are held by Christians. It would be worth you looking into if you never have before. But we must remember, even though we can't just modify baptism however we want and just make it into whatever we want, There are some wrong views of baptism that I would just say are errant. They're wrong. Like, I I think that they're wrong biblically. But there are other views of baptism that are heretical, right? The fact that they are errant doesn't mean that they are heretical. There are brothers and sisters who have, our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters, they do not hold to views of baptism that are heretical, like their understanding of baptism is different and I think it's wrong. But they, nothing that they believe about baptism is undermining the gospel. It's not undermining truths about who God is, about what Christ has done for us, about the means of salvation. And so we have to know the difference uh, that we don't just let baptism become a free-for-all, but that we also don't imply that anyone who differs with us or anyone who has a wrong view of baptism is somehow a heretic or somehow not to be viewed as a Christian. And so we can't just modify how we want, and I want you to hear clearly from me as one of the pastors, if we adopt this proposal, we are not going to begin practicing infant baptism. Uh, We don't believe that that is a a proper mode of baptism. We are credo-baptists by biblical conviction and by the confession of our statement of faith. Uh, We're not going to begin baptizing infants. But I think that this story in Acts 19, it should compel us to keep following the pattern we see in the New Testament that when people hear when they believe we baptize them and that's what we're going to continue to do as a church because that's how we see baptism taught and how we see example in the New Testament that said that the practice of baptism is important I want us to to also spend a few minutes talking about how the presence of the spirit is of utmost importance because there's one distinction that I did not point out one difference between these two stories that I think is key by silence, which I know silence is, is, can be a dangerous thing to build something off of. But a key difference I did not yet give full voice to is the fact that in Acts 18, there is no recording of Apollos being baptized again, right? There is of these 12 men in Ephesus, there is not a recording of Apollos being baptized, right? That, that is silence. I think Luke, uh, in Luke's writings, that silence should be loud to us because Luke does not hesitate to mention people getting baptized. He does it again and again and again and again. Here, there's no mention of Apollos being re-baptized, okay? So why, why wasn't he presumably re-baptized? What gives with that? Why, why was he not baptized again? We're not told explicitly, 
right? We're, we're not, Luke doesn't spell that out for us. But that's why I took time to point out to you the difference of whether the Spirit of God was present with these men or not. I think the men in Ephesus, those 12 men, were baptized because the Spirit of God had not been active in them. He hadn't been present in their life. Even when they'd been baptized into John's baptism, the Spirit of God had still not been active in their life. But in Apollos' life, there was good, strong evidence for Priscilla and Aquila and for everybody who knew him to see that the Spirit of God was active in him that he was present in his life. And so we don't know exactly when he had been baptized into John's baptism. We don't know if it had been a recent thing or if it had been years prior. We don't, know, we don't have record of when that took place, how that took place. Uh, but what we do know here from this story, by all appearances, is this, is that even though Apollos still had a flawed or deficient understanding of baptism, I think that's implied by the story here, that he didn't fully understand baptism rightly, that he still had the reality that baptism points to, right? That even though he misunderstood baptism and needed to be instructed, he still had the reality in his life that baptism pointed to, the presence of the Spirit, the union with Jesus. Those things seem to be overtly true in his life. Right? So I think that's why he is treated as a brother, that he's not called upon to be rebaptized again because the Spirit of God is already active in him. Right? And this is, I would want to, to point out to us, that I, and I believe this, that it is not the passing through waters of baptism, but the, it is the possession of the Holy Spirit that is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. It is not the passing through waters that, that makes someone a Christian. What makes someone a Christian and what we look for to know that they are in Christ is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. That is the distinguishing mark. I love our statement of faith that we hold to as a church and that our denomination holds to. There is one line that I have not been able to get out of my head uh, from our statement of faith that I wanted to share with you that, that helps establish this point. The statement of faith says this, says, all, talking about baptism, it says, although commanded by Christ, and although a true means of grace, grace is not so inseparably tied to baptism that no one can be saved without it, or that everyone who is baptized is thereby saved. That takes a little bit to chew on, uh, but I would encourage you to do, it, do so later on. That, that baptism is important. It's a, a means of grace in some ways to us, as we are baptized, or as other people witness baptisms, but people sometimes have gone under the waters of baptism that have not undergone conversion, right? And there are some people who have never been baptized that clearly are born again, that clearly have the Spirit of God at work in them. And so you see throughout the New Testament, the clearest distinguishing mark of who is inside the church and who is not is not about whether or how that person was baptized, although that's important, but it's about whether they possess the Holy Spirit, whether he is active in their life or not. So that's an important point to make. I want to make one little side comment, um, another kind of look out the window here, because there's one little detail in Acts 19 I don't want us to misunderstand. This text, Acts 19, some people, some churches, take the, uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit to these men and the laying on of hands and them prophesying and speaking in tongues. They take that as an indicator that there's like this two-stage activity of the Holy Spirit that you're saved and he kind of that work in you but then there's this like more full expression of the Spirit and, and knowing him that every Christian needs to experience 
This text does not teach that. Uh, th these guys weren't even Christians, I don't think. This is like one stage happening where they're hearing the good news. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. He does give them these gifts. But even those gifts aren't normative in the church. The Apostle Paul, read about his conversion. That stuff was not happening when he was born again. Uh, but he clearly was worked upon by the Spirit. And so I wouldn't want anyone to read that and think, Ooh, that, that is what should be in my life, that I need to have this second wave of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. The Spirit is either active in a person or not. He's either present in a person's life and dwelling them, or he is not. We don't have to ask for a second stage of the work of the Spirit. A couple final implications from this text. There's far more that I wish I could say, and I'd be glad to talk with you, and I know other pastors would be glad to talk with you. A couple implications from this text, and these realities that baptism is important, but the possession of the Spirit is more important. I want you to hear clearly from us as pastors, we don't think of baptism as optional. Uh, we don't think that it is just a subject that should just become a doctrinal free-for-all, that we can just believe whatever we want, that we can believe any divergent view of baptism. I don't want anyone to fear that we're becoming squishy, so to speak, on this subject. We are credo-baptists. Like, we believe that's what the Scriptures teach, uh, that that is how we are to baptize is baptize only believers. We think that that doctrine and practice of our church is correct. We don't believe that any less than what we have before. When we get back into Hebrews 8 next week, just FYI, that chapter is the most clear teaching, I think, in the whole New Testament of why we believe what we believe about baptism. And I'll share more about that in the weeks ahead. But we're not diverging, we're not shifting what we believe as a church. And when there are Pado baptist brothers or sisters who come into our fellowship, guess what? I'm going to continue to try to encourage them and convince them that they should be baptized as a believer. Because I think that is what the pattern of the New Testament is. And I think there's much joy that could be gained for them and a witness for the sake of Christ. I will seek to continue, our pastors will continue to seek to persuade them to be baptized as believers. They will probably try to convince us as well. Uh, but we recognize, and I hope that you recognize, that there are gospel-believing, Jesus-trusting, scripture-following, spirit-indwelt people who have a different understanding of baptism than what we do, right? There are those people. There are some in this room right now. There are brothers and sisters who hold different views of baptism that I think are errant but are not heretical who are resting their soul upon the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And they are trusting in the resurrected Jesus just as fully you or I do. And we want to, in the spirit of Acts, as a pastor, they probably want to teach me more accurately as well. But what we do not want to do is we don't want to create a barrier to membership in this church to people who are clearly part of God's church. Like we do not want members of this church who are clearly members of God's church. I wanted to end with one verse from Romans chapter 15. I actually preached upon this text several months ago, but I want to remind you of it. There's a verse to these Christians in Rome, in Romans 15, 7, where the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so what he was telling them, what he was reminding them is Christ has received you. So as you look out on the horizon of other brothers and sisters, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Receive them, like see them as a brother and sister. Treat them as a brother or sister. 
for the glory of God. There is beauty seen in that that can be shown to the world that when we disagree, even about some pretty core things, that we can still relate to each other as brother and sister because we know that even if we have different views of baptism, we have the same spirit of God within us, that we have the same Savior on the throne of heaven. And so I I would just end by saying church unity is based upon the common possession of the spirit, not our common position on baptism. Church unity is based on the common possession of the Spirit, not our common position on baptism. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song here in just a moment. I'll share some parting thoughts at the end about some follow-up from this. But let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll sing together.